one, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Um, hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the Green Left Show. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we're all meeting here today on stolen land. I myself am on Wadaron Country and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, this year marks 30 years of Green Left and it's thanks to our viewers, people like you who view and read our content who have been supporting us for 30 years. Um, thank you for all your support over the years and we hope we can continue to have that support for another 30 years. Um, and to really help the Green Left project continue, um, we would love for you to become a supporter of Green Left. If you go to greenleft.org.au um, and you can chip in for as little as $5 a month, but every bit helps the project continue. So today I'd like to start um, by introducing our speakers. We have David Spratt, who is a research director at the Breakthrough National Centre for Climate Restoration and co-author of Climate Reality Check 2020. We've got Pip Hinman, Green Left editor and activist from Stop Coal Seam Gas Sydney, and Kamala Emanuel, who's a Socialist Alliance member, co-writer of the Socialist Alliance Climate Action Plan, and an organiser of the Climate Justice Alliance in Brisbane. So thank you to the three of you for being on the show today. Thanks, Sarah. And welcome to all our viewers and thank you for joining the Green Left show. So firstly, we'll go to um, David. There's been a lot of debate recently in relation to carbon emission reduction targets. Um, Scott Morrison has finally acknowledged that Australia needs to get to net zero emissions, preferably, he says, by 2050, but hasn't promised anything more than by the second half of this century. And we know Labor is fudging their position, but has clearly backed away from their already inadequate 45% reduction by 2030 policy that they took to the last election. Meanwhile, we've got Extinction Rebellion openly pushing for 100% reduction by 2025. Um, so a question for David, firstly, where does the science currently sit on this? And if we take politics out of it, um, what is science telling us about how quickly we need to reduce emissions? Well, science always has politics in it, unfortunately. <laughs> the IPCC um, science is always, is always framed by the social sort of... Um, uh, starting point of those who create the science. But look, I guess the question is, what's the goal? I mean, we have 1.2 degrees of warming now. Last year was the hottest year on record. At 1.2 right now, we've already passed tipping points for the loss of Arctic sea ice, the loss of, of West Antarctic glaciers, and our coral reefs are, are in a terminal spin. We've lost 80% of the barrier reefs. So, I mean, I would say that 1.2 degrees of warming is already too hot. And there's obviously no carbon budget for 1.2 because we're already there. We know that Paris talks about 1.5 to 2 degrees as being the range. Um, 1.5 is only a decade away, 10 years away. Um, and by 1.5, there's likely to be further tipping points. Uh, for example, Greenland and the Amazon are both looking very tricky now. And there's no carbon budget left for 1.5. There is none. I mean, there are no models that show any carbon budget of 1.5 without making extraordinary assumptions 
about technologies that don't exist in the second half of the century. So it is really clear, I mean, the research is saying, there's another piece that came out a couple of weeks ago saying, the current level of greenhouse gases is enough for two degrees. So there's obviously no carbon budget for 1.5 either. When we come to the two degree target, which is what all the debate is about, you know, this zero 2050 and so on, the, the IPCC produced a carbon budget, but it is really faulty. It underestimates the rate of warming. It underestimates the future warming. It, it excludes certain feedbacks. And it comes up with a figure, which, I, which is obviously far too generous. But even, even if you take that figure at face value, let's say that the, the, the IPCC carbon budget is reasonable, which it isn't. The Paris Agreement also said that there were equity concerns. So it's not just the budget, but how that budget is shared, because obviously we're in a country which has a heritage of using a lot of carbon emissions to build infrastructure. India is the opposite. So they have a, a, a right to, to a carbon budget in the future, much more than we do. And Kevin Anderson in, in the UK looked at the, at the IPC budget through the parity equi Paris equity sort of framework. And he concluded that for Europe, in fact, for England and, and Sweden, the carbon budget, the IPCC carbon budget runs out 2026, 2028, in six to eight years. And it, it, it is worse for Australia, so we're bigger emitters than them. So what does the science tell us? If you say science plus equity, the carbon budget for Australia runs out within a few years, certainly well before 2030. So from a scientific point of view, Extinction Rebellion are right. Brilliant. Thanks, David. Um, and Kamala, we'll go to you next. So with all this um, mainstream focus on net zero by 2050, can you talk to us about what does net zero actually mean um, and what should we be pushing for in that context? I think it really follows on from what David just said, which is that uh, what we know is there is too much carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases there are too much of these in the atmosphere right now. So we have to be talking uh, not only about when do we get to zero emissions, that means just not putting more carbon dioxide and the other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. There's also the question of taking them out. And, and, and we know from the work of James Hansen and others that we need to get down to, like, so we, we currently, there's more than 400 numbers, right? It's a bit boring. But anyway, there's more than 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So that's its concentration now. Historically, like in the period where humans have existed and civilization has been happening and agriculture has been practiced, it's been much lower than that. And we know that we need to have a uh, a short-term target of, of getting down to about 350 parts per million and then headed as fast as we can towards 300 if we want to get back to a safe climate target. So it's not enough to talk about net zero, particularly because what's, uh, what's included, it, it allows for a kind of a sleight of hand. When you talk about net zero, it's what you get when you um, talk about how much emission you're still doing and what you're taking out of the atmosphere. But we have to stop the emissions and take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So if we're talking about waiting to 2050 to even, just even it up, there's just, there's just no, there is no sense in that. And so we need to be talking about how quickly can we get to more or less gross uh, emissions of zero and then, and then draw it down as well. Start, start heading 
away from the 410 or whatever it is parts per million that we're sitting at at the moment, head it down to, um, to store carbon in soils, in plants, find all the different ways. And there are lots of them. We have to find all the different ways and implement all the different ways of getting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, grow more trees, grow more plants, keep crops covered on the, um, don't, don't let the soil just um, erode and, and uh, you know, just let the carbon dioxide out. Make the soils big sinks, make our forests big sinks, make grasslands big sinks. Um, we've got to be doing that quickly because we already know there's been, um, you know, like to just echo what David said, there's already too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, too much, too much greenhouse um, gas concentration, too much warming has already occurred. And if we just think of the um, of black uh, summer last year, we're just, just thinking about Australia and we should be thinking a lot bigger than just Australia. But if we only just, just narrow it to think about Australia just briefly, when 3 billion animals uh, died or were displaced, um, $2 billion of healthcare costs just for people presenting to emergency departments and other with their respiratory problems and other things like that. I mean, the, the direct deaths of 173 people, I think, um, and an additional 450 people who died directly from smoke inhalation, smoke-related deaths. And then there's the what hasn't been quantified yet, the impact of smoke inhalation on health from here on in, like the generations, the children's and the children and the, the, basically the, the fetuses who've since become children um, affected by um, affected by the fires um, through the course of their lives. That's just one devastating period of our lives, and we're set to have a lot more of those. So, so what we need to be <coughs> thinking about is everything that we can do to um, to stop the further emissions and, and and draw carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So, so just talking about net zero by the never never is. Um, is is just uh, I think other people than me have <laughs> formed this idea. That's the suicide note. Um, Pip, we'll move to you next. Um, so, with the election of Biden, we've seen a suite of new executive orders signed to address climate change, including a new view of climate change being a national security and foreign policy concern. Um, there does seem to be a lot of hope from um, activists on the ground here that this shift in the US will pressure Scott Morrison to take action. Um, and Morrison has shifted position from his rebuff to Boris Johnson last year when he said, I will not be dictated to by other governments' climate change goals. But I guess the question for everyone, is it enough um, from Biden? And what do you make of Biden's policy? Uh, well, thanks, Sarah. Um, look, I'm speaking to you from stolen land of the Gadigal Wangal people. Look, um, I guess um, in comparison to the climate denier Trump, these executive orders from uh, Joe Biden were a really big turnaround. Um, and if you just go and read them, which I did, you know, if you just read them as a list, it sort of sounds pretty good. Rejoining the, the Paris Agreement, okay, moratorium on new oil and gas leases, more areas set aside for conservation, climate finance for poorer nations, electric vehicles, good paying union jobs to stimulate clean energy. So look, this all sounds really good. And um, if, if Morrison came out with this tomorrow, we'd be saying, wow, the movement's really put the pressure on. Um, of course, we know this is all on paper. Um, we don't know how much will be left to the market to push it along. I would say the large slab of it. Um, Joe Biden, 
is um you know he's not a Bernie Sanders and he's not he's not actually following the direct you know the, the Green New Deal that Bernie put up. Um, you know how much of this plan is going to be publicly resourced? Um, how fast will it go? You know we'll have to wait and see. We know Biden isn't a radical, but nevertheless this whole turnaround has put pressure on not just Scott Morrison has put pressure on Anthony Albanese to come up with a different plan. So from the point of view of politics, that political pressure is definitely there. Um, your question is, is it enough? Um, no. <laughs> we, we, it's a capitalist government. Uh, uh, <clears throat> nevertheless, um, I think you've got to say, you've got to put this down to the movement that was supporting um, the Green New Deal or talk about the Green New Deal in the US which he's had to take on board, I think, coming into and show that he was he's going to be a de decisive change from the Trump administration. Um, mm. You know, I think he's carving out a space, if you like, for green capitalism in the US. He's saying this is what could be yours. Go and grab the opportunity. Um, nevertheless, I think that provides a lot of political opening for the movement in the US. And actually it will find its reflection here as well. Um, it's not going to happen automatically in Australia. We can get to that in a minute, but um, uh, it's nevertheless, you can see Morrison unsteady. Will he be invited to the Earth Summit that Biden's talking about or not? David, I might come back to you because you made some comments at a recent talk um, reflecting on the leadership from Daniel Andrews um, in the COVID period and you put up a slide of um, Andrews at the end of your talk and said, you know, imagine if we had a political leader that got up for 120 consecutive days speaking about the climate emergency. So I guess when you hear the leader of the free world getting up there and, and talking about the climate change being a national security and a foreign policy concern, do you feel like we're shifting the dynamic or...? Yes, well, in that presentation, I also put a, up an image at the beginning of uh, a place called Fisherman's Bend, which the government is redeveloping um, and it's been a huge amount of money on and showed that because they hadn't taken climate change and sea level rise into account, it was likely to be under uh, underwater by 2100. So, I, you know, I gave him a tick at the end because, I mean, I live in Victoria. We've, you know, we're now in a very short lockdown at the moment. But, I mean, just thinking about it, I mean, for a leader to get up every day for, you know, 15 weeks and do a press conference, to, there, were no, there, were no more, there were no more questions, just... <laughs> he, he, he outran the journalists and just every day explained why extraordinary measures was necessary. That's what struck me. Mm -hmm. I just thought, God, if, if, if any leader got up every day and spent an hour and a half in front of the people, because everybody was watching it, it rated really well, and talked about climate and the way they talked about COVID, it would be really different. I mean, it was a rhetorical point, but, you know, it, 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 there's, a, there's a real issue there. Um, I mean, I, I think it's right that, I mean, obviously in the United States, um, um, AOC and the more progressive forces in the Democratic Party made climate change, a really strong climate change policy, the condition of them supporting the Biden campaign. And he, know, he, he knew he needed them. So it's absolutely true that that movement that Bernie Sanders and AOC and, and masses of people in, engaging in climate is what drove Biden's policy. The question is not whether it's better. It's obviously a lot better. The question is whether it's enough. And, you know, and this is where we... You know, we, we've got this, this, you know, this really existential question because, I mean, we've seen that talking about targets 20, 20 30 years in the future is an excuse for delay. 
I mean, I noticed last week that the Australian Petroleum and Gas and Oil, you know, Industry Association umbrella body um, uh, committed to zero by 2050. And I thought, well, BHP and Rio Tinto and all the others are there. So uh, you begin to wonder what, what the problem with it is when they're all on board. And the, the, the problem is that it's like saying, yeah, I've got an alcohol problem. I'm going to give up in 10 years time. I mean, you just you're just pushing it off, and and the whole history of international policy making, internationally. I mean, we've had 25 of these these cops. We've had 25 annual conferences making policy to make things better, and ambitions still keep on going up. So, the the problem is obviously talking about things into the far distance rather than talking about things now. The other comment I'd make, and we might come back to this, is that there is still a, you know, a desperate assumption in politics everywhere and in business everywhere that we can get out of this problem without large-scale economic disruption. And that's that's the great delusion and that's what nobody wants to face. I mean, disruption is now inevitable, either because we don't do enough about climate change and, and simply the Earth will not be habitable for most people on this planet now, or we make a really fast, dramatic change, which, which, which means it is not business as usual. As I've argued over and over again, it cannot be market driven because markets cannot assess the risks. It requires the leadership of government reflecting the view of the people to make this happen. And that's, that's, that's the thing that we can't talk about. Not that we need to do more, but whether we'll do enough. Um, I guess we'll stick with this theme of targets because this has been a lot in the mainstream discourse. It's all about targets. Um, and so, Kamala, we'll go to you next. Um, and I guess the question here is what is the role of targets and how useful is it to get caught up in this debate in relation to, you know, reducing X percent of carbon emissions by X year? Um, and, and is this the right focus or is it a distraction? Do we, you know, we could keep debating targets until we're blue in the face. Um, and is it distracting us from action, like actual action and implementing change? I think arguments can be made either way. My take is we need to be really clear on, on the need for strong targets within five years. Because of the because of the fact that that of of all that put it off to the never never we have to be talking about what we can do now and what we need to do now and we must talk about um, a, a target of reducing the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in my opinion because um, because that's where we have to go to restore a safe climate uh, and so I I think that. I, I don't myself. I don't think it's a distraction. I, I think it, it can be a distraction if we're not talking about well, what plans need to be implemented to get it. If we're not talking about a hundred percent of our energy needs to come from renewables um, within a five to ten year time frame. If we're not talking about the fact that we need to be uh, have a massive program of reforestation, that we need to have you know, the, the kind of um, transitions in our urban environment. So we have urban agriculture and, uh, you know, environmentally sustainable, basically, you know, green energy in all our buildings. You know, if we're not talking about what the zero emissions world looks like, then, then okay, yes, it's a distraction. But I think we can do both. I think we need to because, because we're not going to get the, the kind of scale of action that is genuinely required if we want to avert the kind of catastrophe that is is staring at us, and I just don't think—I mean, it's depressing. No one's going to say that it's that you know you mightn't 
you know, you mightn't feel like, oh, my God, but we are talking about a, like an existential crisis facing uh, at least civilization. So, so if we, we have to be talking in those terms. But we can talk about, you know, the, the, the green jobs that are part of this and the, the just transition that's a part of this. Like, well, I don't think we have to choose between those two is, I guess, what I'm saying. And I, and I think um, there is a, a lot that there is to be excited about what a transition means because we do need to guarantee jobs for people. We do need to guarantee education and healthcare. That is a part of a, you know, a Green New Deal or a, a new green economy. Um, and and so I, yeah, I don't think we need to. I don't think we should be afraid of talking about the truth of what targets we need. But also, equally, we we don't need to be afraid that that communities can't come up with the kinds of plans of what we need to to implement um, to to make it a reality. David, we'll come back to you. Um, so I mentioned before, I watched the footage of your talk at the National Climate Emergency Summit Forum. Um, and I'm not sure if the question was posed later in discussion, but in the YouTube um, upload, there was a question there, how much do the scientific facts really matter in addressing the climate emergency? Uh, <laughs> um, so did this come up in discussion? And I'm just wondering yes, look, what it, it the always, verdict is. <laughs> it always does. I mean, just to come back to the previous question, I mean, um, in Australia, I mean, we've been talking about targets for 20 years. I mean, Ross Garner was hired to tell the Labor Party what its target should be, and we've got this percent by 2030 or 50. I mean, look, in politics, as soon as you start talking numbers and percentages, people turn off, honestly. I mean, it's just too much detail. Unless you're telling what a tax cut is, they don't care about numbers. I mean, so I think all the discussion about targets should cease, and we should simply say it's already too hot. It's already too hot. There's, there's no speed at which we can get to zero that wouldn't be fast enough. When people say to me, uh, when do we need to get to zero? I said, well, the answer is yesterday. And I'm not, I'm not being silly. I'm actually being serious. You know, scientifically, we need to be there yesterday. So, uh, you know, we've got to get there as fast as we can, making this the highest priority of economics and politics. This has got to be the first priority of the nation. And let's see how fast we can get there, certainly within 10 years. But I think all these percentages and so on are really a wipeout. I mean, to come to your question about the science, look, I think the problem is that I mean, as you mentioned, we did a piece of work recently called Climate Reality Check and, you know, talking to people around the place about it, it is clear to me that if you look at the elite levels in this country, whether it be the politicians, whether it be the company directors, of the, the senior company directors, uh, whether it be the executive level of, of the public service in Canberra, and I've challenged a whole lot of NGOs to say, can you name one person in that circle who actually gets this science as it really exists? And they don't. I mean, there is, there is a mass delusion in this country about the nature of the problem. I mean, they think that the IPCC is, is a good starting point. I mean, it, it is reticent to a point of being useless. I mean, the IPC no longer has any, any, any uh, user role to play. So we live in a parallel universe almost where there is a body of evidence, which I think is compelling. And the political process is hooked into a politicised version of the science, which systematically underestimates the problem. So I think there is, a, there is still, and I know this seems stupid after 15 years, there's still a point to have an argument about what is the nature of the problem. I mean, John Schellenhuber, who advises uh, Angela Merkel and the Pope and has done some work with us, said, and it's, it's a great quote, and it so simply said, unless policy, climate policy, is based in the physical reality, it is useless. And that's still the problem we've got. 
Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so, Kamala, we'll come back to you. Um, the Socialist Alliance has had a policy of advocating for 100% renewable energy since at least uh, 2010. I think I've still got a T-shirt lying around that says 100% <laughs> renewables by 2020. So that one's at the back of the cupboard now. Um, yet the Greens only took that um, as an explicit policy to federal election in 2019. So I guess even though Socialist Alliance doesn't have any seats in federal parliament, um, is there still a role for us and the left and those not in parliament to be advocating for this demand? Uh, to be honest, Sarah, I think it's essential that we, I mean, I, I actually, I take on board um, uh, David's point about about numbers and targets and I, I and I, I think that that's um I, I think there's a, a lot to be said for that I um I, I had written down um just in in my preparation notes that, that what I wanted to talk about was what we need to do is do it at breakneck speed um and and so and and so some of the kind of formulations that the socialist alliance has put forward over the years have been you know this percentage or no at, at least this percentage you know and and trying to get across the sense of do as much as we possibly can, you know, as quickly as we possibly can. Obviously, with um and, and um, you know, with, with with this as a priority, obviously, um, in a social justice framework, so so that it's not um, a, a, you know, we we do this as fast as we possibly can, while making sure that it's um it's appropriate to communities. Put First Nations people in the the centre of decision making. Put um put communities, regional communities, in the centre of decision making about what goes on in their community. Put workers at the centre of decision making about, um, uh, you know, about how um, about how it affects them. Now, I realise I've just strayed from your question, which is, is there a role for telling the truth? But there, there completely is because if uh, it's essential that there be activists organising and um, and community consciousness raising, if you like, going on that uh, that makes it clear that business as usual and and just even uh you know incorporating a business friendly approach into something that puts it off into the never never that this is not going to cut it and that if we uh, allow you know the um the petroleum and minerals and whatever council to to um to dictate it which is what is going on i mean the the, the greenhouse mafia is still dictating policy in Australia the fact that um that we've got this supposed gas-led recovery coming up that's that's um the that that is only happening because those who stand to lose profits um from the rapid transition that we need uh you know they are dictating the terms on which we even talk about it so yes it's essential that workers community activists left-wing political parties like ours um you know, or just green types, all, all of us, um, Extinction Rebellion folks, all, the whole lot of us who actually care about there being genuine solutions. We have to um, keep on pressing for what's really needed and not accept garbage like a gas-led recovery or not accept things like putting it off until uh, until 2050 before we, we get, you know, the change that we need. So I, I think it's... Um, I can't say there's there's no other way that, there is no other way that change is going to come, and I think that um that you know parliamentary inquiries, parliamentary procedures, we we've just got um we've got to recognise that that's not the generator of change. It's it's the people out in the streets, um it's the people in the community raising awareness through direct initiatives, you know, transition towns and things like that, 
but also and very especially through the the big mobilizations in the streets these are the kinds of things that are going to make the difference and that's where um that's where we need to be arguing for the strong action that has to happen and not let up uh, no no matter what sops they give us along the way um, Pip, we'll come to you next. Um, you wrote an article on Zali Stegall's bill for climate action in Green Left late last year. Um, and in January this year, it was reported that Stegall's bill is backed by more than 100 businesses and organisations, um, including the Greens, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, the Australian Industry Group, the Australian Medical Association, the Business Council of Australia, um, Origin Energy, Tesla, the list goes on. Um, firstly, can you give us a view of, of what it is that Stagall is proposing and, and why has it garnered such broad-ranging support? Uh, thanks, Sarah. Well, this is the... Just to go back a little bit, I wanted to make a comment about targets. Um, I don't think we can avoid having a conversation about targets because precisely because what Zali, Zali Stegel has done now with this bill of hers, which is basically, you know, get something done by 2050, um, because that is the public discourse. So I, I don't think it's too complicated for people to understand. I think um, it's framed in these terms um, and, um, and targets has just become a meaningful and important part of the dialogue. However, you need a plan, and we should be insisting on a plan to flesh out what the targets actually mean. And in, in this case, as it applies to Zali Stegel's bill, I don't think it's good enough at all. In fact, I'm even, even worse, I think what it does is it takes, it basically opens the pressure valve and lets all the air out, if you like. So she produced this bill in February, just after the uh, last year, just after the um, catastrophic fires that um, the whole East Coast was suffering through. Uh, where a big discussion erupted about the link between bushfires and climate change. Of course, the government didn't want that discussion to happen, neither did the Labor Party. We were told it was being insensitive to make the links, etc. but everybody knew it, the firefighters, everybody was talking about it. Um, the school kids, uh, the students were organising strikes. There was a huge public, not just discussion, there was a huge mobilisation on the streets. And she produces a bill saying, let's do something by 2050. I mean. This is what makes it, 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 it means that um, I think, you know, this bill is actually um, about looking like you're doing something when you're not doing anything, really. That's mm -hmm. essentially what it is. Now, it doesn't surprise me that all these organisations are supporting it. I know the Greens are even supporting it in Parliament. You would look silly if you didn't. But they've got their criticisms, um, as do others, the Climate Council and all the rest of it, saying this is too little too late. This is releasing the pressure valve on the government rather than um you know screwing screwing down the screws on them if you like i mean she actually says she wants to lay out the best outcome for all stakeholders i mean as david said earlier this is climate the climate uh science is political it's not apolitical yes the science is there and we can debate about you know ipcc and all the rest of it but yes they underestimated their predictions um but um it is political in the sense that the people that are running the show um, are going to decide what's important and what's important, what's not important. And so, you know, this whole debate is political. I don't think you can separate out the uh, separate the science from the politics here. 
Um, I think what Zali is trying to do is to say it's not political. We can lay out the roadmap everyone can be happy with. So basically she is emasculating, if you like, the climate movement that has erupted from the streets. Um, and I think that's what makes me so furious about this bill. Um, it's all about leaving it to government because, as she says, you know, this is just a bill to get a whole lot of review committees set up and a whole lot of targets written down and a whole lot of committees set up and um, Parliament's supposed to, to look at that. I mean, if and we're supposed to trust the people in Parliament who've done nothing over this past period. You know, this is the other thing. I mean, it's affirming... The, the role of the climate deniers in Parliament as well. Um, well, okay, Zali Stegel is, you know, took the seat from Tony Abbott. She's, her, her, her base is, is, is um, you know, small business, big business, the rest of it, she's got to be all things to all people. But I think um, what's a bit, uh, what we need to speak out against, and that's what Green Left's tried to do, is break it down and say to people, actually, this is not good enough. This target is not good enough, it's not fast enough, it doesn't actually relate to the climate science even though she claims um, to be doing it. It's also dangerous um, because it rests on the assumption that we will get there somehow or other with some roadmap of hers by 2050. Yeah, I think there's another thing that Pip's just alluded to. And if you think back, I mean, the change in the debate internationally is because of people, the, the, the mobilisation in the US, I mean, around the more progressive Democrats and, and those outside of it, of Extinction Rebellion, which really has had an amazing influence. And of course, the, the student striker movement, they're the people who have put pressure to, to, to up the ante, it, it is that, that that's what's changed in in the, in in the last few years, and that's fantastic. Then you come to Australia and this zero twenty fifty thing, and you find almost this schism in the climate movement because you've got this mobilisation on the one hand, then you have got, and I have documented this, the large professional advocacy NGOs spending the last year talking about zero twenty fifty, and if you look at what they've done, stop talking about twenty thirty. So they they fell they fell into this this twenty fifty business together with you know, BHP and Rio and you know, the, 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 the whole crew, and I mean I said this this, this to them at the time and I and and I, I really fear this that that this process will go on. Morrison will get two months from an election and say yes I'm with zero twenty fifty, I'm the climate guy that I agree with all of you I'm I'm up with all of this. And, and press the election button and the mm. movement will be left with nothing to do because of what it's asked for, it, it's got. And again, can't turn around and say, well, actually, that was all bullshit. Uh, it's got nothing to do with the really need zero 2030. Let's let's have another debate because you've already framed the debate in terms that, that are not favourable to you. So I think this has been a really large strategic mistake by the professional climate movement. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've noticed it's created a real schism among activists, even among the, the student strikers and people in Extinction Rebellion who are literally putting their bodies on the line over this demand of 100% reduction by 2025 have come up with the attitude of, well, something's better than nothing. So I'm going to, you know, and no one's doing anything. Something's better than nothing. So, yeah, I'll support Zali's bill. Um, well, the problem with that, of course, is that Alex Stefan has said, I mean, it's an old phrase, that winning slowly now is the same as losing. I mean, this is not another reference issue where if you save a forest, you save the forest. If we don't do enough quickly enough now, it's not just that, you know, something isn't won, but that 
the, the real risk that the, that the global system will break down both in terms of the natural system and the human systems. Uh, uh, so winning slowly is now the same as losing and that's what's not part of this Zero 2050 debate. It just, it reminds me a lot of the, um, some of the debates around the, the um, emissions reduction scheme or the CPRS back, uh, you know, a decade ago where again there were those saying, oh, yeah, let's let's put a price on carbon, that's the way forward, and others who were trying to say, look, we, we need to move more quickly than that's going to allow. And and I think um, I, I think just back to the question that you asked before, Sarah, about, you know, is there a role for people saying we need to do something different? I, th I think just like there was then, there is now a role for trying to, um, trying to be an alternative voice and... Basically, yeah, try, try to, if you like, hold the line, but try, try to um, still maintain a nucleus of activism that is going to be needed if, I mean, if this legislation gets through and with all that kind of support that it's got, it may well and, you know, um, and yes, it may even give Morrison the, the chance to look like he's the champion of climate action. What a joke. The coal-carrying idiot. Anyway, um, so, um, but... What we what we need to do is is still like be building up the nucleus of of activists and maintain an approach to mobilising for what's really needed. Um, Absolutely. Definitely. Well, I think David, you've um, segued to our last uh, question with some of your comments there. Um, so the last question is around the climate movement, um, and I think despite some issues and limitations. The climate movement, including the climate strikes, Extinction Rebellion and other campaigning, um, was building massive pressure um, over the last few years and that really peaked in 2019 and it, it just seemed like it was just going to keep increasing. Um, and then, of course, COVID-19 has derailed that to a large extent. Um, so I guess as we come out of this COVID period, we've got an opportunity to rebuild the movement to some degree and, and get back out on the streets. So, um, David, I'll start with you. What are your views on the next steps for climate campaigning in Australia? Well, obviously getting off, getting off Zoom and, and eyeballing a lot of people on the street is, is a very good idea. I mean, I think it's been very debilitating and everybody says this for the student strikers, for XR, everybody's feeling really frustrated. So people need to to, to re reconnect in that human-to-human, face-to-face um, -face way and keep on doing the things that people are doing. I mean, amazing. I mean, there's still mobilisations going on and, and, and you know, galley blockade doing things and so on. It hasn't altogether stopped. But um, I think that's that's really important that we get back to engaging large amounts of people because we know that digital campaigning has really severe limits and Zoom as a means of organising is wonderful in one way, but also very limited in, in, in the other. So I, I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's, that's absolutely important. And um, I mean, I think that, you know, out there there's great potential because, you know, the more and more I talk to people and I go out and do a lot of talks and so on is, you know, that underneath it all, and it's not just amongst the climate activists, there is growing angst and unease about the future of society. People know we're heading into a bad place. Uh, they know that the government's supposed to protect them and, and ensure their future, and it's not. And so I think there's, you know, there's a really sound basis for, for engaging a, a lot of people because, honestly, uh, even though people may not follow the detail, in their hearts they know what this issue is about. They really do, and they've got really good common sense about it. So I think if we can communicate and engage climate in a really matter-of-fact way, it's already too hot, it's already dangerous, 
you know, future generations are going to are going to do it really tough. Look at the bushfires. Here's what we have to do. Um, that that can produce a great a, a, a great engagement. Thanks, David. Pip, we'll go to you next. What do you see the next steps being? Look, um, I think we've come a long way in just a few years, actually. Um, you know, for for a while, a few of us were really worried that you know the climate movement. So so was too abstract for people to get their hand, hands on and therefore, you know, a coal action or an anti-gas action or whatever was the way to go. And then, you know, inspired by Greta Thunberg, the Students' Strike for Climate and Fridays for Future just took the world by storm. You know, this is just relatively recently. I think we, we could, you know, we can be quietly, um, you know, not confident but pleased at how fast a younger generation has taken all this on board and and joined the protest movement. Mm. And look, COVID's a blip. I don't think we should think the movement's gone away. People are reading about it. They're watching it. They're, you know, um, just because we aren't there all the time and COVID has been a difficult year and it's going to continue this year, we're going to be back. So I think we, sh we could be more optimistic that... Um, uh, we're going to get back out on the streets definitely. But also I think if we've got to look around and see how many communities are organising around projects to make their communities more, um, you know, um, sustainable and safer and all the rest of it. There's, there's a lot of project work going on. Now, look, well, I know we're talking about big picture, we're talking about policy, but if communities get getting organised, it means that they are educated, they're self-educated, they're educated and they want to make things happen. We need the big levers, I know. We need the public funding. We need, the, um, we need uh, public support for, 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 for a whole new um, approach to climate, energy, housing, agriculture and the rest of it. But, you know, I think we need to be quietly optimistic that we'll pick it all up again and... and, and um, and put First Nations peoples at the centre. I mean, I, I think that a younger generation is really listening to this after the catastrophic fires and it just, it makes sense. Yes, listen to them. Look at how they husbanded the earth for forty to 60,000 years. Um, yes, there's things to learn there that we can. So, um, yeah, I mean, then you look around and you look at all the plans, Beyond Zero Emissions has got a plan for a million jobs. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of initiatives. It's not the case that we need, we're not, we're starting from a much higher level, I guess, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm seeing. Um, of course, we want people not to be deterred by the, you know, Zali Stegel bill. That's true. But um, I, I guess I feel like, you know, as the other others have said, as Kamala and David have said, you know, it has to be a street-based movement because we know ultimately that's what, is going to be the unrelenting um, political power that's necessary um, to make to force politicians to change policy. We know that that's the surefire way, and there's no no amount of fiddling around in Parliament is going to make them change uh, because there is the conveyor belt. We know from looking at the um, electoral donation sheet that just came out the other day. Um, the corporations, the oil and gas and coal corporations have a direct line to the policymakers and they expect bang for their buck. Um, so we've got to, I guess, you know, we've got to get back into the streets and build that political pressure to make sure that that um, um, bang for buck, they pay for that basically. 
And um, it's really not about just putting politicians in that, that have a better policy. I think now is the time we've got to discuss that climate change is the problem of capitalism. Capitalism brought us here. It does not have the solution. And that even a shift to a Green New Deal, which is publicly funded, will actually get us, will actually take a chunk out of their armour and, and, and set us on a different path. And look, New Generation is up for that discussion. Um, let's have it. Brilliant. Thanks, Pip. Um, Kamala, to some degree, you're on the front lines up there in Queensland, you know, supposedly the state that lost the ALP the last election. Um, and it could be an election year. So in terms of climate campaigning um, up north, what do you see the next steps being? Look, I think it's really important to be thinking about the kind of alliances that occur and um, the uh, we can we can debate who lost the election for <laughs> Labor, but it's certainly uh, it's certainly essential to have a plan for a just transition and for jobs that are going to be sustainable, that are going to be well paid, union unionized. Um, you know that that the this idea of a just transition it can't just be some oh you know you'll you'll get trained and you'll have some job. It has to be a, a jobs guarantee. So there has to be a jobs guarantee for every worker in every industry that's affected by our global need to make a transition out of coal, oil and gas. Uh, so it's it's not the fault of workers who work in those industries that we need to make this transition and they totally need to be um, cushioned and protected in that transition. And so that needs to be an important message that comes into the um, the climate movement, as, as do the questions, other justice questions like the, the centrality of, of Indigenous First Nations people in um, in looking at what sort of projects we need to be doing um, and how we can return to a, uh, you know, a, a healthy, balanced relationship with nature. Um, yeah, we do have a lot of lessons to learn. Um, I think other alliances we can be thinking of are alliances with refugees. And I've, it's been quite um, telling that uh, some of the really important refugee rights rallies that happened even in this last year of, of um, COVID pandemic were initiated by excellent folks associated in some way or another with um, Extinction Rebellion or the, the climate movement in defence of refugees. And, um, and so some of those people clearly see the links. And I think we need to, to more broadly build those links to make sure that our climate justice movement doesn't forget the justice aspect of the climate stuff. And, and so, so that we need to be standing up for um, the right of people to keep on living in their own countries because those countries are still there. Um, and the right of displaced peoples to um, sanctuary when, when they are displaced by, by climate, um, recognising that the, um, there are a whole bunch of um, countries, is the, the, generally speaking, they're um, you know, deindustrialised or under-industrialised countries, the, the global south, who are disproportionately affected by the impacts of climate change. And so, so those, those alliances still need to be, you know, we'll, we'll need to, to be building um, so, that we don't get, so that we don't get wedged on any of these things. Um, or I guess I just sort of um, wanted to, to also be thinking about what politics for, for the movement. And I do think not accepting the Steggall Bill framework, whether it gets uh, adopted in Parliament or doesn't, not accepting that framework is important. And I, I think when, when you think about who have become the supporters of the um, of, uh, of that legislation, it's quite broad. You know, there are groups who really do want 
climate change action to be undertaken and groups who pretty much don't. So how's that possible? I think those of us who, um, you know, people who are part of the climate movement who've decided to come in behind and support it. I suspect that's got to do with feeling like this was the best thing that could be uh, achieved. And I think that that's a fundamental lack of confidence in the ability of the movement to really break through. And we've had decades of not breaking through. So you can see where what that can be based on. But I do think that our best chance of winning those people to, uh, you know, demands for, for the real action that we need is in mobilising and keeping on mobilising and growing bigger so that... Um, so that people can start to have hope that the actions that need to be taken, um, you know, there's a realistic prospect of that, that it, this isn't the best that we can do. And I, I agree that, that I mean, I think there is a danger with um, with this legislation being adopted as the framework because um, one of the things I noticed when I was having a look at it was um, was that it's not possible. Like people, a lot of people are saying, look, we'll, we'll get that legislation in and then there's room to improve it. But actually the bill says it's not it, it's not possible it's not allowed to change the target unless something substantial changes um so um you know if the science is already telling us it's too late to make targets for 2050 you know what what's going to change um so I, I think i think yeah getting in the streets trying to trying to build um alliances of those who are in favor of Stegall's bill those who aren't but but for strong action and the kinds of things that we could think about mobilizing around uh for, for Earth Day, um, given that there is going to be this big summit that, that Biden's um, going to be inviting people to. Well, what about if we mobilise either in the lead up to it or on April the 22nd um, to, to be part of putting pressure on the Morris government to do something? Um, and, and when there's the, the COP meetings, I think it's COP, but anyway, meetings in Glasgow later in the year, uh, there, there has been, I think, the Eco-Socialist Network and, and others are working on talking about trying to Put out a call for, um, or support a call for a climate strike, a global climate strike, not only of students but of workers as well. And if we can mobilise that kind of power, students and workers, um, Indigenous people, refugee rights activists, if we can mobilise those sort of constituencies, yeah, we can really, um, we can really uh, build the kind of political movement that can challenge um, for serious action on climate. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Kamala. Um, and thanks to Pip and David for today's discussion. It's been very wide ranging, but I think we've ended on a very positive note. Um, and there's plans there for mobilisations that we can work towards in 2021. Um, thank you, everyone, uh, for watching the show today. Um, and just a reminder that uh, Green Left is in its 30th year and we do need your support uh, for the next 30 years. Um, so please head to greenleft.org.au, um, view our content, read our content. If you're involved in a movement, in a climate campaign, refugee campaign, we want to hear about it. Um, we'd love for you to write articles, take photos, videos and send them in. Um, and stay tuned for the next Green Left show. Thank you. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.